Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Skylar Ramirez to the show. Skylar was a senior leader at Amazon with over eight years at the company, leading both retail and technical teams. During his time, Skylar drove numerous process improvements for Amazon's retail business, including delivering hundreds of millions of dollars in free cash flow savings across Hardline's categories. In his last role at Amazon, Skylar led the engineering teams that provide data services for the Amazon Devices Org. Last year, Skyler left Amazon to join Facebook, where he currently leads data engineering teams. Skyler, welcome to the show. Thanks. Super happy to be here, Tyler. Let's kick things off and dive into a little bit more of your background at Amazon. Can you tell us about your career and your time there? Sure. So uh, I was hired by Amazon out of the entertainment industry, which was a huge culture shock, as you might imagine. I went from an industry that was very much title obsessed and image obsessed to one that was very much not. And my first role at Amazon was as the first ever in-stock manager hired for the pets category when it became a standalone category. And I did that for two years and I enjoyed it. And then I was following kind of the typical retail leadership track and I went over to become the DMM or rather the head of vendor management for sporting goods. But I didn't enjoy that. And as I looked at it, the reason I didn't enjoy it is I was finding that especially in vendor management, there was just a whole bunch of repetitive work that people were doing They could have easily been done by a computer or just by having some simple rules-based approaches. Instead, we were hiring these really smart people and we were doing things like saying, hey, you know, go write SQL queries for a big portion of your time because we don't have good central reporting on X, Y, and Z, or go, uh, go do pricing rules and things of that nature, which can just be a slog. And I was complaining about this after about a year to uh, one of my mentors there at Amazon, Laura Orvitas. And her whole thing was fine. You don't like this stuff. Come and do something about it. And so she uh, encouraged me to take a job in her org, leading process improvement efforts across hard lines. And it started with me and one person yet to be hired. And we grew it to its own team and its own right and had a lot of fun with it. But interestingly enough, I, I referenced that we, we were hiring MBAs and you know to write queries. One of the first things I found in that role was that we just spent way too much time asking non-technical people to go write SQL queries. So one of my first pitches to leadership there was to start an analytics team, data engineering, data science, BI engineering, to take some of that work off of people's plates. And Laura was super supportive. In fact, before I even pitched it, she pitched starting one for consumer electronics specifically. So I had her backing. And, And that's how I got into the analytics space. And I really enjoyed it. It was this great mix of tech and non-tech. And eventually, as you referenced, I went over to the devices org to take over a data engineering, data science team, and a software development team that was focused on internal data tools. Did that for a year, really enjoyed it, but then you took an opportunity with Facebook to come here and run the data engineering function for our developer platform and really enjoying that. So at some point, I imagine I'll go back to the business side, but, but I'm enjoying the data stuff. 
One of the arcs that I saw across my time at Amazon is that Amazon, as its businesses and categories scale and become more mature, the focus turns to automating and taking the manual processes out. And so it's really cool to hear that you were really spearheading a lot of that within the hardline consumer electronics space and recognizing, hey, there are these inefficiencies. I think I can grow a team and tackle this problem and and really lead the charge for Amazon and this organization to help address that. So interesting background there. Obviously, you're leaning into it and and doing even more now at Facebook as well uh, with that skill set. So Skylar, you and I were chatting a little bit before the interview here. And one of the leadership principles that we were talking about was a leadership principle that actually isn't referenced anymore. So to give listeners a bit of a background, what we were talking about was the leadership principle vocally self-critical. And if someone were to pull up Amazon's leadership principles today, they wouldn't see that listed. But Amazon still very much believes in this principle of vocally self-critical. And a few years ago, this leadership principle was merged into the earned trust leadership principle. And so what's interesting is that if you read what is now the earned trust leadership principle, there are four sentences. And three of those four were actually original sentences from this vocally self-critical leadership principle. So the current earned trust principle states, leaders listen attentively, speak candidly, and treat others respectfully. They are vocally self-critical, even when doing so is awkward or embarrassing. Leaders do not believe they or their team's body odor smells of perfume. They benchmark themselves and their teams against the best. So as I was saying, you and I were chatting a little bit about this before hitting record here. So I want to talk a little bit about what you learned around this leadership principle. Can you go back and tell us where in your career you first learned the value of being vocally self-critical? Yeah. So I love this leadership principle. It's something that I loved before I came to Amazon, but it was really the examples of great leaders at Amazon that really taught me what it means to be vocally self-critical. And In fact, I think it was one of the rare mistakes Amazon made with its leadership principles to remove that as its own explicit principle. Because even though, as you referenced, it's pretty heavily inside of Earn's trust, I still think there was something special about having that as a leadership principle where we could say, look, we need to be vocally self-critical here. We really need to stand up and say, we messed up or we made a mistake so that we can move forward and find the right solution. And going back early in my career, One of my early jobs was with Disney, and I was actually a contractor there during my last year of business school, and I loved it there. But I remember one of my first meetings, I'm sitting in this room with probably about 20 other people, and it was this kind of weird meeting about DVD releases and weird in that there were a lot of people in the room and a lot of cooks in the kitchen and just a lot of people that owned this. And I'm just one of them. Uh, And I'm sitting there and they're having this big argument because someone had forgotten like to leave space on a disc for some bonus feature or another. And this wasn't a big tentpole release. This was, I think, you know, something probably like a Winnie the Pooh movie or something that appealed to a narrower audience. But for 45 minutes of this hour meeting in which I think we were supposed to get through like a dozen different DVD titles, the whole room is just arguing over whose fault it was that there wasn't enough space on the disc for this bonus feature. And it just kept going and going. And I had no idea what they were talking about for most of the time because I was new. But I finally stopped the meeting. And and looking back, this was, I think, a little arrogant and presumptuous of me. But, you know, when you're in your MBA program or fresh out of it, you think you can solve all the world's problems. And so I just said to the room, I said, hey, let's just say it's my fault. And, you know, after this meeting, I'll go into Julie, who was our VP, and I'll tell her it was my fault. And, and everyone knew that was ridiculous. 
And they just kind of looked at me funny for a minute. But then the, the weirdest thing happened. The entire conversation flipped completely away from whose fault is it to how do we fix it? And I think it took like five minutes to figure out how to fix it in a way that wouldn't cost Disney a whole lot of time or money. And it was a lesson for me that even though I was probably being a little presumptuous and arrogant and opening my mouth at that point and presuming that I had the fix for this, there was this power, this inherent power to taking the blame for something so that people can move on. And this wasn't really a vocally self-critical example because it wasn't my mistake. In fact, true to my word, I marched into the VP's office after the meeting and I said, okay, Julie, this happened. It's my fault. She just kind of looked at me and said, yeah, that happened like six months before you joined. What are you talking about? And she probably laughed me out of her office. But it was this great learning experience that like, hey, when we stop trying to place blame and when we own our problems, it makes it so much easier to then go find a solution because you can get everyone focused on what comes next versus what happened yesterday. I love that example for a couple of reasons. One, it's a great example of how fast a solution can pop up once you get past the blame game, right? Once the energy is no longer focused on whose fault and instead is focused on problem solving. So I, I love that. And then I also like uh, that you recognize that so early in your career. And so you came to Amazon, which I believe was the next company you worked for after Disney, already having that great example, you already understood the value of being vocally self-critical, which is something that Amazon values. Skylar, I want to talk a little bit about the time you had in this data and process improvement role and team at Amazon. You spent a good portion of your tenure there really picking apart a lot of Amazon's more established categories and businesses across US hardlines, as we called it. And you were able to find opportunities to improve operations, improve the way that we ran the business to uncover opportunities for improved profitability. How did you go about benchmarking your work and the work of your team, even though this was a nascent function and team that hadn't existed before? That's a great question. So the first thing I'll say is that I made a mistake when I started out in that role and I entered it too anchored to my own experience. So I, as I shared, I'd been frustrated by a variety of things as a DMM and even as an in-stock manager to a lesser extent. And so when I got into this role, I had some really solid ideas in my head about these are the problems I need to go solve. And a few of them I was spot on, but just as many as I started to dive in and actually look at the data and talk to other people and interview stakeholders, I realized we're just plain wrong. And luckily I had some really good leaders that uh, helped call attention to this fact at that point uh, and kept me from going down and spinning my wheels in a few different paths. One of them actually I referenced earlier being how Amazon handles pricing and then goes through something called pricing rules with its vendor managers. Uh, at the time, I thought that was going to be the big hill to go die on, that that's where I was going to spend a lot of my time trying to really drive some improvement. And as I got a few months of the role, I learned that, hey, there's already a bunch of initiatives in place that are going to make this a whole lot better. And it's even not as much of a pain point as I think it is right now. So that was kind of my first thing in this whole benchmarking. I went out and I interviewed people. I measured things where I could, uh, though a lot of it was qualitative at the time. So I looked at various internal tools and how long people spent using them. I went out and did surveys of folks, asking them how they spent their time. We even went so far as to do in-depth time studies where we would ask people to log their work in 15-minute increments for an entire week. Everything they did, every tool they used, and of course, we had to go convince them to do that and to do it accurately, but it was super informative. And what I found is that 
there was some real low-hanging fruit out there that we needed to go address. And some other areas, interestingly enough, that didn't seem so obvious, but that we felt that there was probably an opportunity. But then the challenge was, how do we measure success? As you well know, if you wait until halfway through the project to decide how you're going to measure success, you're going to be successful because whatever measurement you choose is going to be super biased towards whatever you've decided to do in the project. And I actually think this is a critical component of vocally self-critical is it don't try to change a story to make yourself look successful. And so we had to make sure we were setting our metrics for success and our definition of success early on in all these projects. So for instance, we would look at something like, you know, I'll go back to my example of people spending so much time writing SQL queries. And we look at things like, hey, there's a very quantitative number of queries out there that people are writing and it is indisputable. And there's a number of those that fail every day, every week that just represent wasted work. If we can bring that number down by a you know healthy percentage, that's a win. And then there were other numbers we attached to that project. Like we did surveys on the amount of time people were spending on it. And we said, okay, we're going to do this exact same survey or this exact same time study in six months. And then again, in 12 months, and we're going to match up the numbers side by side. If we can't see a statistically significant difference in this time in a downward direction, we're failing and we're not doing what we should be doing. And we're not having the impact. We spent a lot of time thinking through these problems, coming up with qualitative measures like net promoter scores, which I know are technically quantitative, but I still think of more as capturing a qualitative feeling, you know, how satisfied someone is, all the way towards those really like finite, granular, how many queries are failing per person per week and can we fix that? But it was challenging, but I'll go back to that main point, which is we knew we had to figure that out early or we just think our own BO smelled like perfume because we just, you know, come up with the metrics or the statistics that would tell the story we wanted to tell, even if we didn't set out to do that, that's just the natural human inclination. That's a great example. I want to pick apart a couple things you mentioned in there, Skylar. One is coming back to the end of this vocally self-critical or earned trust principle that says leaders benchmark themselves and their teams against the best. You talked a little bit about how these goals and these metrics and KPIs should be set at the beginning of a project, not midway through the project, so they're not biased. When you're starting off on a project that hasn't been pursued before, how do you make sure that you are benchmarking against the best if maybe best hasn't been previously defined? I think about it two different ways. Number one is goals should be stretchy yet attainable. And number two, goals can always get harder. They should never get easier. And and I'll come back to that second point in a minute. But on the first point, we would look at the inputs. So we do sanity checks. So going back to using an example like percentage of failed queries or number of failed queries per week. And I I can't remember exactly what we used, but we would look at the inputs to that and say, how many people are running these? How many are failing versus succeeding? How many of these failures go on to eventually become successes because people try the query five or six times and then finally get it right versus how many are they just abandoning and walking away from? And we would look at and say, if someone spends an average, and and these are bogus numbers, obviously, but if someone spends an average of five failures before they get to that successful query, if we can reduce that by one, is that reasonable? And what would that do to our actual output goal? What if we reduce it by two? Is that reasonable? And we would bring in people that maybe weren't as close to the project from across our team and say, hey, does this sound reasonable? And a lot of it was going a little bit by our gut in terms of what passed the smell test, as a lot of Amazonians will call it, right? What sounds reasonable? And then we'd set a goal, and then we'd usually say, okay, 
if our goal is a 20% reduction and we think that sounds reasonable, let, let's go for 25. Let, let's be stretchy because what's the old term? If you shoot for the moon and hit the stars, you're still better off than if you shoot for the stars and, and crash and burn. That's how we would approach it. We'd try to shoot for the moon. We'd try to go out and find something that felt like it was just a little uncomfortable to go get it. And then to my second point, goals can get harder. They should never get easier. This is something I learned from John Witham in Hardlines, which is don't ever go into an Amazon meeting and say, hey, the goal we set at the beginning of the year was too hard. So we're going to make it easier now. That conversation will never, ever, ever go well for you, nor should it. Because again, even if you're missing your goal, continuing to press for that bigger, harder goal is always going to get you further than if you lower it to a place where you're a little more comfortable. That doesn't mean you want to set unattainable goals up front, but you want to own where you're missing. But when you do hit a goal, then you set a stretch goal. So if you, we hit that 25% number, then it was like, okay, well, that's great. We hit our 25% number in September. So now our goal for the end of the year is 35%. And you always want to continue to ratchet up your goals as you achieve your initial goals so that you can continue to hold yourself to a higher and higher standard. And that's especially important, like you said, where you're dealing with a space that's maybe a little more greenfield. There isn't as much to go off of. We couldn't necessarily look and say, the person who did this before, they reduced it by X, so we're going to reduce it by Y. We didn't have any of that. So we really had to just think, what feels stretchy yet attainable? And then when we hit that, assuming we hit it, what now feels more uncomfortable for us to go after next? That's a really helpful framework, Skylar. And what I'm taking away from that is that, you know, a lot of times there isn't a clearly defined range for a goal, but it sounds like you drew from multiple data points or multiple sources of feedback to land on an initial goal. And then if that initial goal happened to be far off, you bias towards making the goal stretchier, making it more difficult versus the opposite. And so in the end, you're only going to be benchmarking against the best if you're constantly raising the bar for what it is your team sets out to achieve versus lowering that bar. So I really like those insights there. I want to go back to another point that you mentioned a few minutes ago. You said that when you first embarked on this role and set up this new team, you thought that pricing rules was kind of the low-hanging fruit. And then you realized that maybe there were other opportunities that were more promising or deserved your attention more than pricing rules. And I think that's very relatable because many of us find ourselves from time to time in those situations where we've started on a project or started towards a goal. And then we realize that what we've been working on is actually not as important as something else that is more deserving our attention. And that can be a little bit awkward, especially if we were the proponent of the goal and we've been visible in our work against that goal to date. Going back to that experience or one like it, you talk to us about how you were vocally self-critical and shared with either your upward management and or your peer stakeholders that you were redirecting or pivoting from this initial goal and instead going to focus on something different. Yeah, I mean, early on in that role, you know, I remember having to write a doc where I said, initially, we thought one of our priorities for this year would be to improve processes around pricing roles, but dot, dot, dot. And then we filled in all the reasons we were wrong. And by we at that point, it really was I, because it was me plus like two or three other people by then. Uh, and I was still really, really the one setting the day-to-day -day strategy for our team. Uh, as a new team, although I had some terrific people that worked underneath me that did just as much as I did in that space. But, you know, as a manager, when your team has to go admit they're wrong, 
it's really you admitting. And, and that's how it always should be, right? It should always come across never as, oh, my team was wrong. I was wrong. And in this case, it was me. I was the one that came in with pricing rules. That's my hill. And then I was the one that had to go in and say, I've got to admit, we wasted some time spinning our wheels here. But what I found, at least in the Amazon environment, is no one ever, ever got mad at a team for walking in and saying, hey, we just wasted a month diving into something only to find out that it was the wrong place. Where you got in trouble is if you walked in two months later and said, hey, you know, we suspected a month ago this was the wrong place, but we kept going for the last couple of months and now we're three months in and we've wasted a bunch of time. That's the kind of thing that I think gets people into trouble is when they see something not working at first, we're humans, we tend to double down. And there was a strong, strong temptation when I first started hearing from people that, hey, pricing rules is not the place to spend our time. There was a really strong temptation to be like, no, this was a huge pain point for me as a DMM and a huge pain point for my team back then. I've got to figure this out. And to admit that, hey, someone else is already on the path towards fixing this and I don't need to be the one to swoop in and fight this battle. And that's a tough lesson to learn, especially when you're so personally invested in the outcome. And like I said, I, I had some terrific leaders back then, people like Laura Arvidas and John Nemeth. And then you had John Witham, who was just, I think, the king of, hey, if it doesn't work, cut bait, move on to the next thing. And we always knew we could walk into John and say, hey, John, we decided we were wrong on this and we're going to go work on this instead. He would always respond favorably to that. But it was still scary. And so pricing rules was one. Another area that I can think of was we had some pretty strong feelings about how to build a central analytics team for retail. We were invested in this and we had all the numbers worked out of how much time it was going to save everyone. And we took them into the senior leaders and, and we basically got a no, we're, we're not going to take headcount from other teams and give it to you guys to build an analytics team. You've got to go convince them on your own. And so while we still felt we were right on the overall strategy of building a central analytics function in retail, we had to completely pivot our approach to that. And we had to go basically beg for our supper and convince these product categories to give up one or two of their headcount so that we could do what we thought was really great work for them. And we had to make a lot of compromises as we went on how we approached that to sell this idea that were super painful and several places where we had had to admit, all right, our original approach is just not going to work. Let's get back to the drawing board and think about how do we sell this? How do we get people to see the value of this? And by then the team was a well-oiled machine. We had I had this awesome group of leaders working with me. And it just kind of came naturally, I think, for most of them by then, because we'd been through this song and dance so many times of saying, okay, that didn't work. What do we try next? But it was a slog to get the team to that point, because as humans, we, we never want to admit that we're wrong. How did you as a people leader help those on your teams also demonstrate transparency and humility and be vocally self-critical? I think first off, Amazon has some really good mechanisms in place that kind of force you to be vocally self-critical. And if you're not humble by your own efforts, you get forced into that humility pretty quickly there. And, I'm, and I won't go into detail now, but I'm thinking of things like WBRs and COEs, the weekly business reviews and corrections of error. But I also think that going to your question of how do you get your team to then embody that? When I first joined Amazon, I had some terrific leaders and peers who embodied the humble leadership archetype. So people like Pat Bigatel, Justin Maynard, Laura Orvitas, 
John with them. These were people that never tooted their own horns. They were always talking about what their teams did, and they were always very open about any mistakes that they or their teams made. Um, and one thing I really learned from them, well, several things, but one thing was when one of their teams made a mistake, they weren't putting that team out in front of them to their leadership saying, hey, my team made a mistake. They were going and saying, we made a mistake. More specifically, I made a mistake. Here's what happened. But then when there was a success, that's when they were out pushing their team in front of them saying, hey, it was all the team. I was just here. They let me be a part of it, but it was the team. And so that was one big lesson that I learned that good leaders, if they want their people to be transparent, they shelter them when appropriate from the losses. And by sheltering when appropriate, what I really mean is they don't shelter them from the need to go talk about the losses, but they share the blame with them. Because if you think about it as a leader, you're always to blame. If your team does something wrong, you could have done something to prevent it 99 times out of 100, if not 100 times out of 100. But then when you win, you really want to showcase the contributions of the team. The other thing that I learned is that as a leader, it's all about how you react to failure. So going back to, I mentioned corrections of error, right? So a COE, for those not familiar, is a document that we would write at Amazon when something bad happened, where we basically say, this is what happened, and we get down to the nitty gritty of it happened at this time, and this is when it was mitigated. And we'd go in like, these are the teams that were involved. Here's who messed up and when and why. But then we'd focus in on how did we fix it in the short term, or how do we fix it in the short term, and how do we make sure it never happens again? And the best leaders I saw spent most of their time reviewing the, that second half of the doc that was all about how are we fixing it? How are we going to make sure this never happens again? And that's where they would really drill in. They wouldn't drill in necessarily on whose fault it was unless they felt someone was legitimately hiding something. They'd accept that. They'd look at it and say, hey, you know, thanks for admitting this. They might ask a few follow-on questions to wrap their own set of heads around it. But then they'd really get down and dirty on the great, I see you have this plan to prevent this from happening next time. Have you thought about this? What about this? Hey, go talk to this team over here because they've had to deal with something similar. And that to me is the ideal way to react to failure because people are going to fail. You know, if, if you don't fail, you're not, uh, you're not trying hard enough and you're not taking the risks. I remember Jeff Wilkie in a training I was in once saying that the way he built his career was by taking the projects no one else wanted uh, the ones that were almost sure to fail, and then where he could, not every time, but where he could, turning them into success. And I think that's important. And it's important to recognize the best people fail all the time. And if you react well to their failure, they're going to feel that they can keep going out and failing and keep going out and shooting for the moon and coming up a little short because you're also going to celebrate their wins and you're not going to beat them up. Whereas if, uh, and I've done this as a leader, someone comes in and says, hey, I messed up. Here's what's happening. And you kind of lose it. And you say, how could you have done this? What were you thinking? And frankly, even if you catch yourself doing that and you stop, the damage is done. People are going to remember how you reacted. And the next time you got to bring them something, they're going to be a lot less keen to be open with you because they remember you reacted poorly the first time. And that's a really hard thing to learn as a leader. But luckily, I had a lot of great examples around me. Those are very helpful examples. And I think that really in training and coaching others, one of the implied insights that you shared there was that one of the things you can do as a leader is be an example, doing a couple things. One, you mentioned taking the ownership for what happened. And the second thing that you shared was focusing on getting all the data on the table and focusing on the learning. What do you do to be better the next time? 
We just have a couple minutes left here, Skylar. So I want to fast forward a little bit. And you've now spent the last several months at another tech company. What lessons have you taken from Amazon's vocally self-critical principle that you find that, that you're using now in your current work? So I think that most of Amazon's leadership principles are pretty universal. Vocally self-critical is no exception. I've had several opportunities, I'll call them at Facebook, to step forward and say, hey, I did this wrong or, or we did this wrong. Some of them in some pretty high stakes situations, but all of them well received. You know, the thing I'll share about Facebook is Facebook is a very people centric company. And so as a manager at Facebook, there's much more emphasis put on how I develop my people than anything else. And so because of that, I know that one of the key things I need to do is have my teams back. And I know that my leaders have my back. And because of that, that gives us a very safe space to admit failure. And so even though vocally self-critical may not be a formal leadership principle for Facebook like it used to be for Amazon and maybe still is within Earn's Trust, it's very ingrained in the culture here. And I've really seen very senior leaders all the way on down to the most junior individual contributors have this opportunity to stand up and say, hey, things didn't go quite the way I was hoping and have others actually celebrate that with them and say, awesome, you learned something. That's terrific. How do you now take that as a lesson to get better going forward? And the culture at Facebook, like I said, people-centric, but also one of feedback as a gift, which is similar to Amazon. And so you also feel very empowered here to go to someone else and say, hey, I noticed this happened. Like, what are you doing about it? And people don't tend to get defensive. They don't tend to put their hackles up when you point out something that they may have done wrong because we have that very open culture. Uh, and it's great to see that. And, and I imagine that uh, if I were to go to the other home thing companies or other large tech companies, I'd see similar patterns because I really do believe that the most successful companies are those that give their people room to fail. And obviously, sometimes you got to give tougher feedback. Sometimes the failures, you know, there are such things as can't fail initiatives and projects. There are such things as patterns of failure. But for the most part, these companies hire really good people, and it's really good to see both of these companies give those people the leeway to go out and try things that aren't necessarily going to be successful. I think a lot of listeners can benefit from the experience you've had now at multiple FANG companies about the value of failing, learning from that, and being vocally self-critical. As we wrap up here, Skylar, where can listeners go to follow you or hear more about your work? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. Obviously, I'm on Facebook and Instagram too, though I keep those more for personal connections. I'm on LinkedIn. I'll post occasionally. One of my goals this year is to post a little more often and get to sharing some of the things that I've learned and observed from others, mostly the latter, because that's where most of my lessons come from is observing other good leaders, I think. But yeah, they can feel free to connect with me there or reach out to me via direct message there. I'm always happy to chat. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Skylar. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.